0: Crew, this is Mark Hattenmaker here, coming to you from the Comancheria. Today, let's talk some old-school grip strength. We're talking enduring grip that the old-timers valued, whether that was uh, rough-and-tumblers, uh, you know, the old-school boxers, pugilists, wrestlers, and, of course, just the, the the working man, whether the ranch and the field and the mountains. And we'll be discussing scattergun muscle, prehab, rehab, and uh, improving what you got. Now, first, of all, we should probably define what scattergun muscle is. Now, when we encounter the phrase scattergun or scattergun muscle in the old record, we are hearing an archaic slang for targets along the periphery. Because, as we know, a standard cartridge is going to just hit what you're aiming at. And we've got some spray, some scatter coming out of your old stagecoach gun or of your shotguns. Now, we hear echoes of this euphemism in old prison slang. Uh, the most current usage I can find is in Paul Wade's Convict Conditioning 2, where he refers to training the neck, grip, and calves as shotgun muscle. He explains it thusly, quote, These groups are often called shotgun muscles by the old-time prison athletes because they ride shotgun with the bigger movers, unquote. And I really can't think of a better definition than that, so kudos to Mr. Wade. Now, in the unleaded uh, conditioning program, which we use, it's primarily, you know, old school calisthenics, and it does have some weight in there as well. So for the most part, there you go. It's broken into, scattergun is broken into three broad classes. You're going to have a GFF, which stands for grip, fingers, and forearms. I mean, there's obviously much ado about grip work there. Scattergun, we'd also, what was the head, or the neck. The old times called the harness because the neck is more about, than the neck. There's more to it than bridging. We've got to awaken the full sweep of the trapezius for true stability on the mat or rolling with the Shots. and then uh three would be the feet the calves and the toes it's not about toe training in the old days because the uh, old school lower leg training was less about the vanity the bulging gastrocnemius and more about gaining speed and strength and stability actually even a bit of dexterity there's some really fascinating exercises with picking up uh, that dexterity there and uh, if we think when we realize that the hands and the feet occupy a good place uh, spot in our neocortex we probably give them far too uh uh, far too little work we'll, we'll cover the uh, scatter gun uh, discussing the, the head harness and the feet calves and toes another day but we are sticking around here with the gff the grip fingers and forearms right now Now, a lot of the forum grip work that we do here is informed, again, it's all informed from the historical record what these early old timers were doing, and uh, it's interesting to spend a little bit of time talking about who they valued, who they thought really had uh, amazing grips. So these historical grip kings, uh, first off, they they respect not only a strong grip, but one that was enduring and survived static feats. I mean, it's not just one thing, you know, grip a bar and stay there forever, you know, squeeze these grippers. They turned their eye to two occupations as embodying this grip strength, one or climbers now i need not say much here because we have copious examples of climbers uh today displaying their staggering gff ability i mean just take a look at the documentary free solo watch alex honnold or anyone is uh, able to work without working with the top rope or anything just there's their hands just uh, astonishing now two what we don't really have anymore are the keelboat men or the flat boat men now, these hosses of america 's muddy thoroughfares were notorious for their rowdiness, their wrestling ability, their rough and tumble nature, and for their uh, uh, for the gFF program purposes here their astonishing grip. Taking a boat downriver was an arduous process. That going upriver, though, in the days before steam, well, that was a different breed of river cat altogether. To go upriver pre-steam required lots of ingenuity, and, uh, but mainly manpower. Among these mortal drivers was the process of cordeling, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-I-N-G. There are two ways to cordel. You tie a rope to the mast. You run it through a bridle at the bow of the boat. Send a man or men upriver with a 1,000 yards or so of line, and we, uh, if you've m- uh, messed with heavy lines that's that's a heavy load in and of itself uh as so, i mean if you just uh, you ruck a bag up of 100 yards on, on your back and you're already adding a significant pound of it. so i can't i can't even imagine you know a muscling you know a thousand uh yards of line through muddy banks that have been not cleared yet remember this is early frontier america so we send the men up river with thousands of yards of line and the man or men on the bank would pull the boat up river against current with full weight of freight performing as what we called canal mules. And now keep that in mind, you're pulling a boat up river against current. Or the man upriver in the bank would tie off to a fixed anchor point and then on the the bow, the line could be pulled in a process called warping either way. Now, usually it was being pulled up the river, but often there were so many uh, uh, obstructions in the way, sometimes you had to resort to this process. And some of these obstructions actually came from being marauded by, at the time, river pirates and or uh, marauding tribes. So uh, anyway, whether it's warping or cordeling, both of these are god-awful arduous. I mean, if you ever have a gander at a full-scale replica keelboat or flatboat, ponder how much guff it takes to do what was just described. A keelboat was on average 70 feet long, 18 feet of the beam, and it's a three or four feet of draft, and once you've loaded this thing up, we're talking a few tons, so, so this is ab- absolutely astonishing. Now it is likely because of this cordling and warping, and some of the other practices, these killboat men, and boat men, these hosses, rivalled climbers for staggering, uh, GFF that grip finger forearm development. Now we'll be, we'll have more on killboat explo- exploits, particularly the fighting tactics, to come in the Black Boss Project. I mean, trust me, these men love to fight, and they have had some astonishing, strange practices going on. If you remember the f- prior uh, podcast episode on uh, ram butters and head butts, a lot of this stuff came uh, from them as well. Lots of craziness around the rivers. Now, let's get on again. Grip, fingers, forearms, GFF. It's more than aesthetics, it's also rehab. And prehab. If you mean, suffer from any of the following, you'll likely find relief and a bit of pain freeness on the horizon if you work these uh, these grips uh, properly. Uh, we've got uh, you know you might suffer, or in the future suffer from tennis elbow or lateral epicondylitis. Uh, I'll skip the latter from here on now. We you suffer from tennis elbow, work golfer's elbow, carpal tunnel syndrome, uh, De Quervain's syndrome, trigger finger syndrome, lifter's elbow. Any of these maladies. Most of these, uh, well, you can say it comes from the elbow and the wrist and the fingers but almost every one of these are stemming from the fact something has gone awry in the, uh, the tendons and the supporting uh, tendons and ligaments support structure around the fingers uh, and the wrist. Even what we're finding up here in the elbow, it's all going to be related to what we're doing with those hands. Now, often these maladies are self-inflicted, in that repetitive or poor use begins the inflammation of the particular issue, and we continue to experience pain by returning to these poor use patterns. I mean, we're hearing some of these same uh, things, syndromes coming out when we're hearing a, of a, you know, gamer's thumb or gamer's neck or texter's thumb. Uh, these repetitive uses uh, cause problems, and then uh, we just keep doing the same damn thing, and it happens again. And I'm not knocking on that because we can have the same thing. I know many a person suffers from lefters' elbow then I'll give up lifting weights. So I get it. We go return to what we like. Also, we've got to keep in mind sudden or unexpected forces can also begin manifestation is in the cases of uses where velocity is key. That's where we get things along the lines of tennis elbow. The powerful tennis serve with the long lever of the racket, which means that we throw, the, I mean, we hit the serve, but the long lever of the racket continues that rotation past optimum for the elbow and the wrists and the fingers. Or we can have the screaming elbow from the heavy bench at the supinated curl, which caused some people to try and get around this by going, well, I'll bench with the thumbless grip or go on. you trying to find these ways to work around the pain. And I get that, but often that doesn't mean it's ever really going to heal, all right? So once pain begins, many choose two paths to recovery. And recovery should be in uh, scare quotes, because often these don't really work. Uh, uh, Path one is the athletic amongst us are often determined to work through it and begin adding, you know, braces, a wrist brace, an elbow brace. I mean, if we get other injury areas, we start wrapping up knees and all this. Or we turn to uh, NSAIDs or painkillers, or we habitually need ice. Now, keep in mind, these steps will not improve the situation and will likely lead to more damage. We have to keep in mind this old school thought, old school conditioning. If you require painkillers post-workout, then chances are your workout is causing stress in the body and it's actually breaking you down and not working. So if you're doing something that requires the habitual use of what we used to call grapplers candy, and I've been guilty of it done it, and I now run without this stuff. Well, I mean, I, I, I train without uh, NSAIDs anymore. Uh, then you're realizing, you know, what, let alone the liver and, and well, the kidney damage there, you're realizing if you're doing damage to yourself and you require painkillers uh, from the thing that you think is making you healthy. Well, there's a bit of an absurdity there, right? Now, the second path that does not work is often rest or use avoidance or task avoidance. Now, this is also anathema as failure to use often leads to loss of strength, flexibility, and mobility in the affected area. And then you, when you try to return to use, uh, a brace is often required to take up the slack that the failure to use is wrong. You know, because that'll use it uh, to lose it. You're going to rust out or wear out and all this. Uh, often when we start bracing things up, we're allowing, we're girdling around that joint and we're allowing that joint to further atrophy. I mean, I know it's kind of a catch 22 when you get to there. Now, keep in mind, there is a caveat here. In Cases of recency, a very uh, recent injury or extreme pain, yes, task avoidance is advised. All right. You kind of get, get the weight off of it. In cases where painful use does not exceed a four to five on a scale of 10 while you're working through this prehab or rehab, well, the old timers would advise get back on the stick at a scalable load and go to work. Uh, regarding use, uh, I mean, we, we, uh, resting out on an injury, I mean, it's from time of Hippocrates to now is still saying, get in there, use it, use use Any physical therapist worth their salt today is going to tell you to get back on the stick. And we can go back a few thousand years. This is Plutarch uh, discussing the same topic. He says, quote, health is not to be purchased by idleness and inactivity. These greatest evils attend on our sicknesses. The man who thinks to conserve his health by idle ease does not differ from the man who guards his eyes by not seeing, unquote. He's uh, target with that now other things we should know what not to do to train our grip fingers and forearms uh, or for the injuries i mean beyond what we just discussed of the stop using or you know add a brace ice up use the painkillers and do the same damn things that hurt it before Here's some more old school suggestions. I mean, some of these are anathema to modern thought, but self-experimentation uh, experimentation has proven to, to this old man, at least, that they knew of what they spoke. So let's discuss the six old school old school no-nos for GFF, that's grip, fingers, and forearm training. One, no-no number one is use avoidance. You just don't skip it. And that's not just the pain thing. If we're going to say you want a strong grip, if you don't train the grip, well, it ain't going to happen. It uh, just does I mean we can get a little bit of grip and come along corollarily if we do pick up heavy things. And, you know, swinging a kettlebell, sure, that can help out, but it's simply not enough. Uh, no-no number two, you can just continue to do well, wound you up where you are with your injury and somehow expect things to change, even though you don't change. Well, that ain't going to work. Uh, number three, uh, no-no, stretching. What you mean? No stretching. Yeah, it seems counterintuitive, but this is particularly when it comes to injuries. Elbows, wrists, and finger injuries are likely manifesting around tendon insertions and/or involve inflammation over areas where nerves lie close to the bone. Stretching addresses muscle tissue primarily, which is not where a likely source of pain or injury is occurring. Stretching of the hands, fingers, and wrist will, yes, stretch unafflicted muscles, but it will also cause the tendons to compress across these bony insertion points where inflammation is already present. The inflamed tendon, which is compressing and firing the afflicted nerve, will then be stretched over the non-giving surface of the bone, further applying pressure to an already annoyed nerve, creating a loop of tendon nerve aggravation. And let alone the fact we want flexible bodies and pliant bodies, but we don't want flexible tendons. We want them to hold. I mean, these are our guy, our guy wires, our cables that keep us together. The advice to stretch the hands, fingers, or wrists with any of the aforementioned maladies present is akin to healing a sprained ankle by doing calf stretches. It's one of those things you kind of stay off of. That you want to build up around it, and then before we turn it to use, and even then, we don't want it to be stretched purposefully. You might be thinking, but Mark, if I don't stretch one, I lose flexibility in the side of injury. No. I mean, unleaded uh, GFF, grip, fingers, forearm, places the afflicted areas through a range of motion while the GFF musculature is under tension. To old school thought, the dual concentric and eccentric contractions will act as shock absorbers or cushions for these bony tendon insertion points, providing the respite for the inflamed nerves. So, eccentric load is very much the key to uh, recovery. Eccentric load is the key to strength, and also eccentric load is where we find the stretching aspect works. This allows us to re-educate use, strengthen afflicted areas, and not only maintain, but even gain flexibility. So, in old school thought, flexibility or mobility or looked at askance. Flexibility was part and parcel of use and performance and not a separate. Now I'm going to stretch a sprained ankle or a stretch, a future sprained ankle chore to be added to your workout. Yeah, I hear you. You might be thinking, give up stretching. Are you crazy? The proof is in the pudding. I asked the intrepid, the experimental amongst us to give it a 12 week anti-stretching period and then decide for yourselves. Okay. Now me, I side with the old timers. I mean, I used to do the, uh, you know, uh, the grapplers dozen every single day of my life. And the older I've gotten, more injuries were accruing on there. I still thought, well, I had to increase my stretching time. Well, I thought I had to increase my stretching time just to keep up the performance. And I just kept maintaining a loop. And until I was really got deep into the old school thought, I thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. I'll I'll give it uh, the 12 weeks. And then there was many a malady that went, oh, well, shit. You mean I've been causing this for this time? Anyway, no-no number four, nerve gliding. Now, this is a modern approach to many of the GFF maladies that fall under the rubric nerve gliding, the theory being that nerves become trapped within their tunnels. As anyone with any experience of nerve gliding can tell you, it is just another form of stretching, that is compressing already inflamed nerves. The scientific evidence behind trapped nerves or nerve gliding, the efficacy of the practice as well, well, if according to science, if it worked above the mean, I wouldn't offer the unleaded GFF program, so I'll simply stated, skip it. Uh, No, no, number five, hand grippers. Now, first, this is not a knock to hand grippers. They are fine for hitting some aspect of use, but they simply do not address enough of the story. There is more to GFF grip fingers for our musculature than simply powerful closing. We require hands that close with strength, hands that can use this strength through ranges of motion and wrist rotation. Seldom do you see grippers used in any wrist position other than locked straight. We require hands that endure to true load rather than gym load. So we need hands that can resp- uh, respond while there's movement going on amongst the wrist, supination, pronation, adduction, abduction, all down the line. Now, we'll get to this uh, heavily in the actual program where you've actually got to make sure that you're firing all uh, aspects and all ranges and planes while you're working the grip and even the opening, the extensors. Uh, no, no, number six, wrist curls. They don't do what you, you, you think they do. I mean, bend your, uh, here's do an experiment right now. I want you to, you know, bend your arm, palm up. All right, have a look at your forearm. Now, I want you to look at the bulk of, of the musculature at the widest point of your forearm. It's just going to be just below the elbow, likely. Now, use your other hand to grip this widest point. Squeeze hard. Now, while squeezing, with the other hand, leave that palm open and perform a few wrist curls. I know you're just miming them. Feel the amount of flex in the forearm and the amount of contraction on both sides of the radius and ulna. you're going to feel those flexors and the extensors. Got it? Now, relax it. Now, with that, uh, you know, squeeze your forearm again. Now, keep squeezing. Stop doing your wrist curls, but instead I want you to open and close your hand as hard as you can. Squeeze your fist as tightly as possible and then open your fingers to full extension as far as possible. Notice how there is far more contraction and flexion occurring when you did finger work as opposed to wrist curling. The muscles of the forearm are primarily about finger control, both extension and flexion. The muscles that control wrist flexion in a plane are far fewer and are activated in finger work, whereas the contrary does not occur. So in other words, you do strong finger work, the wrist muscles come into play. You do wrist work. Finger muscles are just, you know, they're just riding along. They're not really helping out. So in the sits, wrist curls mean your fingers right along as shotguns. But if we work the fingers, then the wrist jump right in there in the game. Wrist curls do not provide the necessary load to strengthen and improve the GFF to the old school degree. Now, Fear information, fear not. I'm not saying that wrist flexion is an unneeded attribute. I'm merely saying that wrist curls pay a poor return on GFF training investment. There are wiser, more useful ways to train wrist flexion. Now, again, we will cover those in detail in the unleaded program itself. Now, GFF training. Grip fingers form. Who needs it? Well, thus far, it seems we've been referring to unleaded GFF as a rehab program. I began our emphasis there to highlight what can commonly go wrong in athletic individuals and to cast a bit of a spotlight on no-nos to emphasize our approach. But let's get on to the positive attributes from uh, those in health holes or without. So who can, good, uh, who can use good GFF or grip finger form conditioning? Well, uh, you ever need to make a fist? And you know, throws some hay with bad intent. You're going to have to need good musculature there to keep that thing nice and compact to prevent injury to yourself. I mean, do you wrestle, play any grappling art whatsoever? I mean, if you do, you know, you got to put your hands through, gripping and twisting and maintaining a hold in unusual uh, uh, paces, right? Do you climb? Do you rappel? Do you swing on ropes over rivers? Or do you need to hoist yourself up an over wall or lower yourself down from a second floor window for for escape? Do you need to grip a tomahawk or a battle axe or a cudgel as tightly 45 minutes of the battle as you did at the beginning? All right, so in other words, good grip uh, fingers and forearm conditioning, it's useful to everybody. Now, in the program, we're going to treat it as one continuous exercise. There are 15 distinct movements in the unleaded GFF program. But number one, you will perform all as one long exercise with as little rest as possible between. Ideally, you will go from one, two, three, four, right, right into it, jump into it. Two, within the program, once a timer is started, you will leave the clock running, even if you come off a bar, an over bar, an underbar, a sledgehammer, to shake it out. Your performance will improve over time. At will come a point where you will not come off it. Initially, everyone comes off of it because it's kind of a grueling bit here. And again, it takes no more than 12 minutes, but uh, it, it happens. Three, the goal is to treat it, though, as one continuous, seamless performance with zero rest within this GFF training period. Now, as to when to perform the GFF. Well, uh, the forearms, the grip finger forearms uh, recover quite well, but again, we're talking with tendons and we're talking, we know there's so many maladies that can arise from here. We do not want to overtrain them and cause inflammation. And the old timers thought you can get away with a, uh, getting huge gains from doing far less than you think. So you're going to want some separation between your grip finger forearm training and our prime mover program, which is when you're doing all your you know, your leg work, your, your back work, your chest work, and all this. So uh, you'll separation between the two so there's no grip interference to kibosh your gains in other areas. Ideally, allow at least an hour before you, between GFF work and any prime mover work, whether are using our unleaded prime mover work or your own. So in other words, if you're doing GFF work and you're later on you're thinking, I'm going to do 100 pull-ups. Well, let's at least leave a couple hours in there. Now, keep in mind, you only need to do the GFF twice per week. That's uh, Any more than that is overkill, all right? You'll find these continuous 15 go a long way to giving you what you need. For my own personal example, see, I train as a, a cyclist, I train three days on and one day off on a revolving basis. So then I will hit the GFF early in the AM on day one of each of my three-day training cycles. And again, and that works out to being just twice per week, per week for hitting this. Of course, feel free to tailor it to fit your needs. Now, as far as what kind of gear required, well, a pull-up bar, that's a must, or a bar, any kind of gripping bar overhead. An empty Olympic bar would be ideal. You can get away with using one of the standard smaller uh, bars that you might you know, pick up, for example, in a, in a department store. But with that kind of thing, I would load it up. Keep in mind, an empty Olympic bar runs up to 45 pounds. Don't add any more weight to that. But a, a standard bar... Probably get it up to that 45-pound uh, standard. So, again, pull-up bar, empty Olympic bar, uh, a sledgehammer or an axe, something to get around there, a long-handle tool with some weight at the end, at least a 3.5 or 4-pound head, and a timer. That's it. That's all the gear you need. Now... Uh, I'm going to stop there because I can't give away you know uh, everything. The program itself is, just take a look. Hopefully there's enough information there to, to whet your appetite. I'll include in the uh, the link here, the show notes here, a link if you want to take a look more at the program. You can look over there at our store and uh, you know, browse around if you like. But if you're already a BlackBot subscriber, you don't have to purchase it because you're already going to get it. It's on the house. We give it to you guys. Alright? So, thank you guys for riding along with us. And uh, we appreciate you. We've put a whole lot of work into this old school research, putting it together and testing it and getting a way we can get it all synthesized and hope you guys appreciate that and uh, thanks for listening guys take care of yourselves